Welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, one of my top episodes ever, David Pajo of the band Slint, Papa M of Zwan, of, of so many projects, uh, solo stuff. He is truly one of the great uh, musicians of... I don't know, underground music to emerge, music in general to emerge. And also, as you will hear in a moment, 100% a punk rocker. But first, if you would like to send me an email, oh, also on the show, today I will be revealing the amazing, the amazing, and I'm not using any hyperbole when I do that, the amazing lineup for the live Turned Out of Punk, which is coming up tomorrow, Thursday, July 26th at Les Ministres in Montreal. If you are around, you will want to be there. More on that in a second as well. But first, if you want to send me an email, you can find me at turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find this podcast on various forms of social media, Turned Out a Punk uh at Turned Out a Punk on Instagram, Facebook, facebook.com slash Turned Out a Punk. And all that is run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, who is also the amazing guest booker extraordinaire, talent booker extraordinaire, um, responsible for David Pajo coming on the show today. So Tristan, thank you so much for, uh, for everything, buddy. I love you. You know, he, he appreciates the shout out once in a while on the show. You know, everyone, everyone deserves a credit. Everyone deserves a credit. So thank you, Tristan, for everything you do on the show. Seriously. And you can also find me on various forms of social media at left for Damien. The best way to support this show is by going over to iTunes, writing a review and rating this thing. Uh, and over there, you will see that there are some other podcasts in the turned out of punk family, including turned out of punk footnotes with myself and Chris O'Toole dissecting Turn Into Punk episodes. You will also see there's Oil and Flowers hosted by Buddha Blaze and myself. And we talk about uh, our cannabis. We are both medical cannabis users. And that is our, our chosen platform to discuss issues around legalization and, and cannabis in general. So check out those podcasts if you are a fan of, uh, a fan of punk or pot. Uh, also, if you listen to this podcast on any other platform, please rate it on that platform. Uh, but most importantly, tell all your friends about the fun times and the nerdy stuff we talk about on this show. Uh, speaking of supporting the show, this show would not be possible without the loving, kind, amazing support of the fine folks at Vans who have come aboard and said, Damien, we don't want you to do this out of your pocket anymore. Uh, we want you to uh, be able to do this uh, for fun and uh, and yeah, not have to lose money on it. So they came aboard, started sponsoring this thing. Uh, really appreciate it. This whole summer long, they're doing the House of Vans events in amazing New York City. If you make your way, or, and also Chicago as well, amazing Chicago. Don't mean to undersell Chicago. Chicago's an incredible city as well. Probably the best, best food city in America. I know a lot of people are going to f- argue with me on that one, but I, I think it is probably my favorite food city in America. 
Anyway, well, that's for a different podcast. Um, but the House of Anne events, which are going on all summer long, have been incredible so far. Maybe you saw some photos of Blondie playing there recently or Suicidal Tendencies. Uh, coming up, there's a Pennywise one with Sick of It All, which I can tell you now looks like Turn It a Punk will be in attendance. So there will be an amazing event to go down. I will be giving you more details about that shortly. But you will find all of that over at Vans.com. House of Vans, um, for more information, get on those RSVPs as soon as they open. I think the Against Me one opened and was gone in like a matter of seconds. So yeah, it's like incredible bands all summer long. Interpol, this is the last summer too for that Brooklyn one. I went to that Brooklyn one a couple weeks ago and walking around there, uh, there's so many memories in that place. Like I can totally remember the shower flooding, water spurting out everywhere. Craig Sitari telling them how to fix it. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of good memories in that building. So anyway, House of Vans is the place to be this summer for a lot of fun shows. A lot of cool events too, you know. Jay Howell's going to be there doing some illustrations at a couple of the events. Uh, there's, there's you know, art exhibits by... Amazing artists, photographers, you know, Chris Stein, I think, just had a photo exhibit at the Blondie show. So anyway, thank you, Vans, for the support of this podcast. I guess we should get on to today's show, and I should leave the reveal of what's going on at Women's Australia. No, before I do, I'm going to get into it a little bit because I, I'm just too excited before we talk about David Paho. And believe me, this episode is worth the wait, I assure you. At... Le Ministre, tomorrow night in Montreal, Thursday, July 26th. Doors are at 7 p.m. Tickets you can still get in advance. Um, go online, buy those tickets. Turned Out a Punk Live is coming. And so far we've announced people from AFI. We've announced people from uh, Rise Against. We've announced, uh, I think, uh, we, Spike is going to be coming back for a, a part two as well on stage. Uh, and now I can also tell you in attendance... Steve Ignorant, f- with Paranoid Visions, of course, but also of the band Crass. That's right. I'm going to begin to interview Steve Ignorant on stage live. But that's not all. Also, live on stage, I will be interviewing Don fucking Letts. That's right. Don Letts, one of the most, I, I don't know, important people in the development of punk a new wave, like so much stuff. This guy was there. Also a key documentarian of all this stuff has made some amazing documentaries, which they're going to be screening after the turn of punk live thing. He's going to be doing uh, another Q and a after that too, but I'm going to get to punish him about his first couple, you know, years in punk rock. And it is going to be, you talk about a dream guest. This is a dream guest. I have wanted to talk to Don Letts in any capacity for, forever. Like as a kid, I remember seeing him interviewed in these punk history documentaries and being like, oh my God, that's the coolest guy on the planet. And now I'm going to be interviewing him. So, uh, yeah, get amped. That's going to be at Le Ministre in Montreal, Turn It a Punk Live. And then of course the next day, 77 Montreal, which of course features AFI, Rise Against, Suicidal Tendencies, Me First in the Gimme Gimmies, a DOA, Satanic Surfers, like so much greatness. It's going to be a blast. And then Heavy MTL the next day, the best catering backstage at those festivals too. I'm I'm very excited. Those festivals are a great time. There's good food out front too. I didn't mean to be like braggadocious about getting the catering backstage, but 
I assure you, as a band that has eaten a lot of not very good catering backstage, that is one of the high culinary points I've had. Not even just backstage, just in general. So, you know, if if the food's that great backstage, you know the performances you're going to get on stage are going to be that much greater than they would normally be. So make your way down to those festivals if you're in Montreal. But most importantly, of course, make your way over to Les Ministres for... I don't know. Like, I've done a lot of these live shows. I've had amazing lineups on these things. There's been some incredible guests, but wow, I never thought I'd get a chance to say that I'm going to be interviewing someone from Crass, uh, someone from, you know, uh, Rise Against, someone, like, just everyone. Everyone. So this is going to be one for the ages. Please make it out to this show if you can. I'm excited for this one. Speaking about being excited, as you can hear in my voice, Pretty damn excited about this week's episode. David Pajo is like one of those... um, Plugged my phone into charge and went kind of crazy on you guys. Sorry if you had to hear that there. Unplugged that. I think my phone's excited too because David Pajo is one of these guys that uh, has influenced so much music. And I got to meet him years ago, 1999. At first I can't really place it, but... I figured it out at the end. Uh, look, thanks to the internet, I figured out it was uh, 1999. I saw him, and it was, without a doubt, uh, a amazing set, but also just like a really cool conversation I got to have with him backstage. That, of course, was fairly early into my nerdy music development, but we talked about the Misfits, and yeah, it was a, a fun conversation about punk rock with him all those years ago. And then, you know, I think also at the time, I don't even think I appreciated how important of a musician he was or is, <laughs> was, is to the, you know, history of, of this music that, you know, I love, you love, we love, uh, which is like, you know, underground, um, rock and roll, you know, he was this guitar God and his stuff in, in all these bands, but like, especially in Slint, but you know, that is something that has, shifted the way people approach this music, I think, in a, you know, and the influences profound that that band has had. Um, I will be making a playlist for this show and you will see on that playlist, like, you know, when you hear that stuff, you're like, oh, that's where that came from. That's where that came from. Uh, but, you know, all these years later, getting to reconnect with them, I have done a little bit more studying and I was ready for this one. This is something that uh, I've been hoping to get to do for a long time. Once again, thank you to Tristan for putting this together. I'm not going to bore you or waste your time with any more details. There's some really cool stuff that comes out in this one. Like really, like turned out a punk uh, Hall of Fame type stuff that comes out in this one. Uh, it's a fun episode. I think especially after coming after Dwid's one last week, uh, rarely on Turn It a Punk do, uh, you know, the kind of like playlist, track list of who's next and stuff get a lot of thought, you know, so it kind of tends to be a little bit random. Once in a while, you know, like uh, Matt Jackson, Fat Tony's one, you get a one-two punch that really works out. And I think that happened this week, definitely 100%. Dwid last week, we kind of hinted at this episode being next. Um, and it's it's awesome how they work together and kind of, you know, you, you'll see. You'll see. Uh, there's a bit of a gap. <laughs> well, not a gap. There's a point where uh, the conversation stops and restarts because, you know, we had to take a break. But it was good because then I interviewed Dwid and, you know, got to put a lot more pieces together. So I'm not going to waste any more of your time. I've talked a lot, but I think it was worth it this week. You know, it's not just me blathering on about stuff I bought or, or you know, things like that. No, this was like 
cool information. And then, of course, you know, setting up this amazing episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Dave Pajo on Turned Out a Punk. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, man. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Well, as I was telling you kind of on text earlier, um, we had a brief conversation a long, long time ago. I don't expect you to remember this when you played in Toronto about punk rock. So I kind of feel like this is my way of uh, following up that conversation all these years later. Um, Man, do you remember uh, what band I was playing with in Toronto? Because I could like it. It was a solo set. It must have been. I was trying to think. I was there okay. to see you play, um, but I think you were opening for someone else, like maybe John Fushante or something, or or like I don't oh, know. Man, it couldn't have been. Was it Super Furry Animals? Maybe I don't know if maybe. we played Canada. I can't remember. Maybe it was. I don't know. But uh, you did a solo set, and then we talked backstage. It was at this club called the Horseshoe, which is sort of a legendary club here in Toronto, kind of like our. I don't know, I guess our CBGBs, but even more, you know, kind of epic history, you know, as far as time goes. Um, but yeah, we, we talked briefly about punk rock. So I feel like now I'm, I'm armed with a lot more knowledge about your, your resume. So I feel like I can be a little more, <laughs> uh, uh, Oh, cool. What, um, do you remember what instrumentation I had then? Cause I might be able to piece it, it together. Like I don't have a memory of it, but it was just you I solo on stage with just a guitar. Oh, okay. Guitar and vocals? Yeah. Or guitar instrumental? Okay. It was guitar uh, I had and no vocals idea. <laughs> Maybe some instrumental Yeah. Songs. Oh, man. I don't remember. Anyway. Um, well, don't worry. Please do not worry because I assure you, I was not in any way but a punisher back then. Now I feel like I'm a, a skilled interviewer. <laughs> A punisher in what way? Well, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but I, I, I play in a band myself, and uh, that's kind of like I guess become, or, or has you know in the last few years kind of become band lingo for. Well, I I say it as someone that self identifies as one in my past. So, but it's someone who just like you know meets a musician and just has to let them know how much of a fan they are over an extended period of time. Oh, I love the Punishers, you know, like uh, if it's, you know, uh, within reason, I guess. Yes, within reason. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. The, <laughs> it, the only time it sucks is if like you're, you're um, like you can see friends that you haven't seen in 10 years on the other side of the room mm-hmm. or like waving at you and you're like, oh my God, I can't talk to a stranger right now. Like, <laughs> you know. But like, that I is to be, be the Punisher. Play. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, I know what a Punisher is. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, there's actually a um, shirt made by Perry Schall, who's a, uh, a graphic designer in Philadelphia, but also a merch guy for a number of years for a number of different bands and tour manager. Uh, but it's a Death to Punisher shirt with a tongue with a dagger stabbed through it. So not everyone is as loving of a Punisher <laughs> as yourself. I, you know, if... You know, especially touring solo, like where you're just like driving yourself around. There's no, you're just by yourself. You look forward to those kind of conversations because otherwise you just, you're on your own, you know, and this Mm -hmm. gets boring. But, um, but yeah, with Tortoise, I remember we had a, we developed a hand signal or it didn't really last, but like that meant like, get me out of the conversation (laughs) I'm having. It could be a punisher or it could be like a, you know, a business person that you don't want to talk to or just any conversation. And it was you, if you 
if you like scratched your head using your thumb with your pinky pointed out, that meant like come over and be like, oh, we got to load out or something, you know, like, uh, and you'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, I have to go. But um, it never worked. Like every time I would be like, like vigorously scratching my head with my thumb, like <laughs> it wouldn't even happen to be looking. So I, I, I should bring that back. Um, but it depends on other people being attentive. Like, <laughs> yes. So you need, you need to yeah. rely on the, uh, the awareness of your bandmates and road crew at that time. And now I've just told everybody about it. So I have to, I have to like come, come up with a new signal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I think it was no effects had a roadie that I remember looked strikingly like fat Mike. And I'm sure it was just wow. like to kind of like distract you know, the kids that would come up after the show to try ah, and talk to That's a good idea. Decoys. <laughs> decoys the way Yeah, set up decoys. But we're not here to um, talk about decoys. We're not here to talk about Fat Mike. We're here to talk about your journey into punk. And I got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is, David, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, yeah, I remember... Yeah, it was from my older brother, which is, I think, is a classic scenario, you know, having an older sibling that was into it. Because um, I was like a metalhead kid, um, and I was really into, like, the, mo the most extreme metal I could find at the time, you know. And um, my brother was always into punk and new wave. And uh, I, we always would get in these arguments, you know, like, he'd be like, oh, your shit sucks, and, you know, they're all idiots. And I'd be like, oh your shit sucks. They don't know how to play their instruments and all this. Like, at least like these guys can solo, you know? Um, <laughs> but the, like they, um, but you know, I, he did like, he'd play like the clash and dead Kennedys and pistols and stuff. And B 52, like all this stuff in the car in like the early eighties when he drive me to school. And um, I liked all that stuff. Cause they said bad words and they, they were, to me, they were funny. Like, Friggin' in the Riggin' by the Pistols was a funny song and um, like their version of My Way and uh, the, what was the other, like all the Dead Kennedy stuff I liked because it was funny. Um, like uh, I Kill Children was a, like uh, I thought was great and mm -hmm. Stealing People's Mail, all those songs. But, the, um, but I didn't take it that seriously until I think I realized, until like I discovered hardcore, like the really fast shit um, cause I, I wanted like the metal that was around at the time, like I was into Venom when that, when that black metal record first came out and like, I didn't know anybody else that had even heard of Venom and Slayer was still an obscure band, even Metallica. Like there were, there weren't that many people that really, I, I didn't have friends that were into that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Merciful Fate, I was really into them. Where were you hearing um, about that stuff? Cause it is, yeah, you're right. Like it's really obscure at that point for you know, a kid to find that stuff. Yeah. And especially like growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, mm. which is, you would think is like, you know, devoid of any <laughs> like, like modern culture or whatever, but it was, um, the, the record store, it was, they always put all those records in the import section, like for <laughs> some reason, even if they weren't yeah. imports, like all the punk and metal stuff, really hard, hard stuff went in the import section and I just bought stuff based on the covers, like the more satanic or offensive it looked, I, I'd buy it yeah. or steal it or whatever. I was a little klepto. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then, yeah, I think it was, I think it was 
um, the like metals started to not feel like fast enough. Like I just wanted shit to be faster. Um, and that's, you know, when I, I, I don't even remember how I first heard like what, what the deciding record was, but it was, I just realized that hardcore was way more awesome and it, and it pressed my emotional buttons, you know, mm-hmm. like it wasn't just a joke or novelty. Like, um, it was like, you know, like minor thread had lyrics that were, that I could relate with, you know, I always felt out of step with the world, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, and so I kind of abandoned all that metal. Well, I, I mean, I was sort of in between for a, a while, but I really got into hardcore and, uh, you know, that for, I had that, DRI seven inch that had like a billion songs on it. Or Dirty Rotten EP. Seven inch. Yeah. Yeah. And um that was the fastest shit I'd ever heard. <laughs> Some gangrene singles. I loved gangrene. Um and and I so I was I'd like felt like I'd found my home. And uh once I you know, like getting into that, like there's a tight knit punk community in in Louisville at the time where, you know, you could listen to all different kinds of music, but it was all like a group of like outcasts uh, sort of, and it was sort of like a dysfunctional family, but we, I felt like I belonged to something finally, you know, like mm-hmm. I found like freaks like me, you know? <laughs> and, and so I fully like, I, and, and then at some point I like, I shaved my head and like went the full like punk route um, uh, and like hit all my metal records. Like I was embarrassed to admit that I liked ACDC for a short time. <laughs> then I, then I, then I realized that punk is actually a huge umbrella and you can listen to uh, ACDC or Robert Johnson or the Smiths and still be punk, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and ACDC is like one of those bands that also, I think, you know, gets the pass because like, you know, there's, there's a power there. Totally. Yeah. And, but I, I still wanted to be part of the purest like, <laughs> hardcore scene. Yeah. Cause I was a new guy, you know? Yeah. But I guess in, like the new guys sort of got hazed for being like, Oh, you're just a poser, you know? Um, like it, cause there were kids that went through phases and then next year they'd be in a reggae phase and smoking weed and not hanging out with punks anymore. Cause they had yeah. dreads, you know? Like, um, but I, I'm a lifer for sure. Like, um, shit, what was I going to say? It was something about, um, like punk. Yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess also because I had, spent so much time practicing guitar Mm -hmm. and like um and learning how to shred like those 80s metal dudes um that when i got into the punk scene i became like a a valuable person because i could actually play my instrument you know (laughs) and and like and so i ended up in everybody's band like and i played drums too so um yeah i just i felt like not popular but i felt just accepted and and wanted you know yeah for the first time. Well, like I was going to say, like when, when you, you started playing guitar, was that like, did you have any metal bands before you came into solution unknown? Um, I mean, I got, I got my, I play, I started off playing drums and I got my first drum set at when I was 13, which I, I don't know what year that is to be honest. Like I was born in 68. I can't do the math right now. (laughs) Um, but it was, um, and then the next year I got a guitar, like an electric guitar, and I I just kind of just picked it up really fast. Like it seemed super easy. Yeah. Um and and that and then I started and then by the time I was 
16. I, I mean, I, I, I immediately started playing in bands when I got my guitar at 14. Like I, I ended up, I was, I started playing guitar with this band that of like sort of rednecks where we, um, <laughs> we just did like rush covers and Zeppelin covers and stuff. <laughs> so I was really into it. Uh, but then we got signed by like a talent agency and they told us to play top 40. And, um, and I just, you know, I didn't know what being in a band was like. So I ended up like, uh, at 14, just having to dress a certain way for playing when we played a prom and like, uh, have to, having to learn all the top 40 hits, which was really funny. Like, um, I found one of our old set lists. We played four sets a night and it was all like, Lover Boy and Night Ranger, uh, <laughs> Prince, um, just all the, all the awesome. songs. Yeah. I, I, at the time, I hated playing those songs. You know, I only yeah. looked forward to the parts where I could show off. But the, um, and I, and I was the same. Like I just stood there. You know, I didn't, I didn't ever move or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I would never put on a show. But then, uh, but I, I, I hated playing those songs, but now when I hear those songs and I, I still remember the guitar parts and I, I think that, that was actually a pretty good education, you know, mm-hmm. like having just a wider, like knowing the current pop stuff as well as like the more like deeper cuts of weirder bands or whatever. Like it, it was, it was good for me. Well, I imagine also as a, yeah, and as a musician probably stretched your kind of like, your parameters and like, you know, your, your, your styles and everything. Like it took you kind of to different places. Yeah, it did. But it was, it was always like places where I didn't want to go. Like, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't, I wasn't happy playing, you know, yes covers and stuff or whatever the, um, uh, or even like the romantics, like that stuff just seemed, I didn't feel anything. Like I didn't like the band after at that point. And so when I got into punk, and they all thought I was crazy because I was getting weird haircuts and mohawks and stuff, and they they uh, I I just you know I realized that there this was a scene playing, and they had bands that and they were playing the kind of music I listened to, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I when I left that band, I just I you know I just went full tilt into the punk world like. <laughs> When you said your brother was like a new wave kind of guy, was he like listening to bands like the end tables? Was he in like that kind of stuff? Or is there like other stuff happening in locally? He, he wasn't, he was kind of like, well, he was like a loner guy too. Yeah. Um, so he, I think he had maybe one or two friends that were into that kind of music. And I don't think he went to that many shows or anything. Like, I think he was just did it. It's kind of like this, like on Stranger Things, the older brother that turns him on to the Clash. Like mm-hmm. it, it was, um, it was kind of like that thing. Like he's not really like a, he didn't look like a punk or anything. Uh, he didn't dress like one, but he just liked the music. Um, so he wasn't really involved in the the Louisville scene. I don't even. He must have known that there was one, but yeah. I don't. I don't know how involved in it he was. Uh, he passed away when I was sixteen, so I like never got to ask him those questions like i'm sorry man but oh it's it's all good it's a long time ago um from to to kind of awkwardly i guess transition back to to talking about other things was was there like a point where you found uh yourself going to shows that were actually what was your very first show you went to or concert even um 
man, it was uh, the first punk show I went to was I saw Maurice, which is a band I played in later, uh, when Brian McMahon from Slint was playing guitar with them. Uh, and, and Malignant Growth, which were a local Louisville band, they're they're incredible hardcore band. Like to this day, Ian Mackay is like because they played two shows with Minor Threat, and Ian just is like, yeah, Malignant Growth were like the the best hardcore band. Like, and they only they have really limited. I think they only recorded in a studio like three songs, but there, there's like cassettes of their their so they were such a good band. I mean, Whoa. I've never heard of this band. They, Malignant Growth, man. I'll I'll have to send you some of their stuff. Oh, I'd love uh, to hear it. It is fucking awesome. Like, yeah. I mean, they 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 were all really big dudes. Like the the singer was just was a like a fo- high school football star, but he was also into poetry <laughs> and sang for Malignant Growth, you know. And the guitarist and bass player were brothers, but they were and they were both garbage men, and they they lived on the the South End, which is like the I guess it's, they call it like the white trash part of town, mm-hmm. and they were just so they were like big intimidating guys to begin with and they just their music is so muscular man it's just so good um and he was and the guitar player was a huge influence on me because he would play harmonics with distortion on his guitar like there were melodies and you know we ended up stealing that idea with or not stealing it but we would it, it was like a it was like an acceptable thing to do in slint yeah like playing like a whole riff could be just harmonics on the guitar, which I didn't realize was, yeah. No, go on. Sorry. No, I just, I just didn't realize that was, it was that unusual until people told me later, like um, there's that song Rhoda that's almost all harmonics on the guitar or the whole ending is. And then, but that was pretty normal to us because Malignant Growth had already done it, you know? (laughs) Um, But yeah, that was my first show. And I remember, when they when Maurice plugged in, they were so awesome then. Like and when they first plugged in and they started, it was like the roof caved in. Like to me, I never like everybody was slamming and it was in this little basement of a house and uh it was um I that's when I was like, This is my world, you know, like I'm so into this. What was that like yeah, was it like mainly a kind of a house show scene then, or was it like all ages venues? Um there weren't all age. There, like, there's always been a venue problem in, in Louisville. Like, mm-hmm. they just don't last long. Uh, so that that's like the ongoing problem is like, where do bands play? So house parties became is is like a really normal way to see a band. Um, so yeah, it, there was like a, an abandoned house we called the punk house because people were squatting in there, mm-hmm. and they they you know they'd have shows in the basement, and that's where I saw them. So when, like, when did you kind of start playing in punk bands? It was almost immediately. I think it was, uh, my, cause my, like I, my, my older brother's friend was this guy named Mike Bakayu. We call him Mike B and he was the punk guy. And when my, after my brother died, me, like me and Mike became really good friends and, and he kind of took me under his wing and turned me on to all this music and, uh, and, and he played, he had a band called Solution Unknown. Um, that was barely a band. It was more of a concept, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, we started playing together and then, 
I I joined Maurice and it, I I just immediately like started playing with everybody. Like somebody's vocalist couldn't make a show, I would take their lyrics and be the vocalist. Or if their drummer couldn't make a show, I'd play drums and <laughs> I'd learn all their songs and play drums. Like I I was just like the I was like the the go-to guy if you needed somebody quick. <laughs> Did you ever play in Big Deal? Uh, no, I was friends with all those guys. I'm. Su- How do you know about them, dude? I love That's that crazy. record so much. That 45 is awesome. Wow. man. That's really cool. Yeah, they were they were like an East End. Uh, they were a little younger than me too, but they I definitely like hung out with them and like did drugs with them and stuff. They're <laughs> like they, <laughs> that was um, that was really uh, that was a good scene. They they had, there was big deal. Man, Todd Brashear from Slump may have even played with them at some point. Maybe that's what you're thinking of, like a member of Slump playing with them, because Todd yeah. was part of that world. I like I, I don't know just because when you said you played with every band, I know they were like on that same label, Self Destruct Records, which you got like Solution Unknown. Right. That's the first release they put out, I think. Um, yeah, that's right. But it's it's a it's an incredible label, like, and I think that label documents. You know, like a lot of bands that came out of Louisville that, you know, like there, there was like a, a good run of like, you know, even starting before that with the bands like the end tables, but like consistently, yeah. like, you know, right up until the nineties, there's just like such a, a good run of bands documented on that label. You know, I've always wondered how, like why Louisville had this great music scene for that from, you know, they had punk bands in the seventies that mm-hmm. were really good mm-hmm. they had like great bands in the eighties, like punk bands or off the, off the radar bands. And, uh, I always wondered like, why, how did, why Louisville, not like Lexington or Cincinnati or some other city. Yeah. And, um, I, man, I feel like there must be something in the water, you know, like the, uh, but there was, there was an art school in Louisville that a lot of the early punks, like from the seventies came out of, um, and they would go to New York and come back with cool records. And um, I feel like they must have had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that must have had something to do with it. Cause you know, it's, it's kind of baffles me. Like how we're like Louisville's as isolated as any other town, but somehow we always had these bands that got it, you know, that understood it. <laughs> like, um, uh, yeah. Self-destruct is a great label. That's that's Mike B's label, um, and he's yeah he's put out some really cool stuff. The the compilations, the Louisville Sluggers ones. Uh, I think he's he's planning on putting out the 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 studio stuff from Malignant Growth. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, which it's about time that it was. I think three of the songs showed up on this pretty obscure hard or punk compilation called. The Master Tapes Volume Three. Oh yeah, like the yeah. The, I, well, I, I think I have Master Tapes Volume One, which is like Zero Boys and like yeah, it's like a Midwest type comp. Totally, yeah. Zero Boys were in Indianapolis, I think. Um, they were and so and Malignant Growth have three great songs on the Volume Three. Oh, if volume you ever find three. a copy of that, now yeah. it's on the bot list. <laughs> It's there. It's with a the, double album. Yeah, it's there with the yeah. Solution Unknown seven inch, and now it's. it's, it's, it's I've got a very huge oh, wall of records. 
I can send you the solution on Node 7 Inch. I mean, I've, I think I have some extra copies. I mean, it was just a Xerox cover. Anybody could bootleg it. <laughs> well, that's, I would be, I would love, I, we will talk later on about this because believe me, that is a, uh, a record that I've looked for for a long time because I think, you know, it's, it's, that's the thing about Louisville. Like you were saying, it's like, and I don't, you know, I, I don't think I've ever even been there, but I know just being a fan of various things that have come out of there, like, yeah, like it's a it's a city that definitely punches above its weight when it comes to like putting out alternative punk, you know, whatever type music. Like, you know, even like that whole it, I think it seems like everything's like there's always ambitious record label type people there, be it like, you know, you're saying like Mike right. B was self-destruct or like the people with initial records. Like there just seems like there's 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 like an and ambition. Slam deck and all that the straight edge thing. Yeah. 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 The, it's true. Like I, and I, but I mean, that was kind of the norm. I feel like when it, back then was that if you, you know, we didn't expect any label to want to put out this kind of music. So it was just like, just start your own label, you know, or like play a bunch of shows and save the money to, to, you know, print some vinyl. <laughs> like that, that was just the way you just did it yourself. It wasn't like a, we were consciously going for a DIY thing. It's just, there was no, no one was interested. <laughs> mm-hmm. We didn't have any other options. Were there a lot of bands coming through or like, who, like, who would you guys play with just mainly like local bands? Um, well, yeah, with actually with solution unknown and Maurice, like we played with a lot of cool bands actually, like, um, cause bands would come through cincinnati and sometimes they go to louisville too but cincinnati's only an hour and a half away so we we would play shows there a lot opening for uh dag nasty or uh um uh fuck tsol or i, I don't know any any num like name a band and we probably played with them that was on <laughs> tour back then like um yeah we yeah we we managed to see a lot of good bands and play with a lot of good bands uh even though there wasn't really a regular venue, mm-hmm. it was, I don't know how we pulled that off. What was the scene like that was like, you know, as far as kids going to these shows, like you mentioned, you know, doing drugs with the big deal guys, like it doesn't seem like it was a very straight edge kind of scene then. Uh, no, there was, yeah, there, there wasn't at least, you know, at that time in like 84 and 85, 86 uh, like pretty much all of the 80s there was almost no real i mean if you were straight edge it was it wasn't a big deal like um but there wasn't a scene for sure you were more of an anomaly i mean tobacco and bourbon are like like tobacco is a cash crop in kentucky and Mm -hmm. and bourbon is made like great bourbons made there so everybody was smoking and drinking and um, smoking weed and stuff it seemed like it to me um, and I, and I guess I, I did to a certain extent. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like, I think that's reflected in the music too, coming out of there. It's like, not like, you know, like there's certain scenes where, you know, like the, the, uh, the restrictions placed on extracurricular activity seems to kind of define the art a little bit too. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, honestly, it was such a small scene. Like I, if, if you played a, if I played a show back then and with Solution Unknown or something, I would know almost everybody there. Um, yeah, you mean you would just know who they were? They'd be a sort of familiar face. Um, so, and it was like, you know, if you like, it would be a goth person or you know, 
everyone was into so many different types of music. It was just, uh, it wasn't, it, there was no real like unified scene unless it was like a scene of weirdos, you know, just weird people. Like if you're like, it was, it wasn't, um, I, I don't think it's as restricted as it, as it is now. Like, mm-hmm. like you could only be like only the hardcore kids went to hardcore shows or only the pop punk kids went to <laughs> pop punk shows or, you know, yeah. Well, I guess you have, to have, like, like, you have to have, like, the population yeah. of those shows to make that, like, feasible. Like, if it's not a huge scene population-wise, you can't really afford to restrict yourself like that. Yeah. And I think people just liked anything that was different. Yeah. Uh, one cool thing about Louisville that I did know notice was later, like, after moving out, was that it seemed like at least my crowd of people, they weren't easily satisfied, like, and really cynical so if you sounded like a like dead up like another band, you were kind of made fun of, you know, or um, <laughs> or if you um, if you like just uh, so so it kind of kept you on your toes to like be unique, be different, you know. Yeah. Um, but also like if you went too too arty or too far <laughs> out there, you had to have something to ground you. Like it had to have like <laughs> you had to. Have, something that was like um kept it like street level or so, whatever where it wasn't that far out you know you have, had to have your acdc moments or something like or or you know what i mean yeah, it, yeah. It, there's always somebody that that was just gonna tear you apart that was gonna bring you back to earth you know if you went too far out <laughs> you've got a lane so that you, you gotta stick in yeah you, um i mean even solution unknown like a lot of my friends didn't like us because we, they just thought we were ripping off minor threat which we wanted to obviously but you know we wish we, we wished we were as good as them but um uh it was just a fun band really it was just like a we just had a good time we didn't care what people thought so. did you guys tour at all or or like is it just because you put out an lp and a seven inch right like there's like and a demo and there's so there's quite a bit of recorded output yeah, we never toured. <laughs> That's, we never even thought about touring. I don't know why. Um, yeah, we just played locally or like in the tri, like Indiana, Ohio area. Um, but yeah, it was it was just it was just like a local thing. It was just a way to have fun because we we're bored, you know, in, mm-hmm. in our town. <laughs> like, and I was doing Slint at the same time. Like, I, I think that seven inch came out in '86. And Tweez was recorded in '87, so I, you know, I was I was doing Solution Unknown and Slint at the same time, which you know are two vastly different bands. Also, King Kong, like, well, because like Tweez comes out in '89, right? Which is the same time King Kong comes out. So I was going to say, we're like those those bands must overlap. Um. Oh yeah, King Kong totally overlapped. Um, not really with Solution Unknown, but with, uh, like, Ethan came to our shows, but he wouldn't, um, he wasn't, like, King Kong was, uh, he quit after, he quit Slint after Tweez was recorded, so that must have been the end of 87 when he quit. Okay. And then 88, he, he started King Kong, um, which started off as a fan scene, a really funny one, and, uh, and then he formed a band and <laughs> and we we all played with him too like like all the slint guys for sure oh so that's like and and so like on that homestead record it's you guys play as well 
I I play bongos on that. I mean, they, I think that's the only thing I play. But like the first seven inch, the movie star one. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if you've heard that. Uh, that's um, the single I have. I, right. Yeah, Britt plays drums on the first two songs, I think, and I play song on the. I, I play on the side B. I play drums with them, and Brian McMahon does the vocals on movie star. Um, uh. You know, yeah, we were. He was still like we were all still part of the family. Yeah, and the same thing happened after Slint broke up. Like we all played with Will Oldham because he was part of the family mm-hmm. on the Palace Records and stuff. Um, what what's the deal with Jennifer Hartman Records? Was that just your guys' label? Uh no, that was um, uh, that was just a girl they knew in Chicago who was like just super cool and could afford to put out this record that. Touch and Go actually rejected. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Um, and I've talked to Corey about it later. He he was like, yeah, I just thought it was too much like Big Black at the time. And and he, and it, it wasn't until we recorded the EP, or yeah, that we recorded those two songs that came out as the untitled EP, um, that he that he realized that he realized we weren't like a Big Black clone or, or like worshiping band. That's funny. Was that like the was that like the thing people said at the time when Tweez came out? Because I don't really hear the big black thing that much. Um, I, I I mean I hear it really really faintly. You know I think it's a stretch. But at the time there was there was big black and there weren't really any other bands like it. And yeah. we had a little bit of that sound. And Albini when he produced it he gave it some of the sound. You know. Yeah, I guess that's. Um, but. Uh, yeah, Jennifer Hartman just she just funded it, and I think I think Britt made the logo, and it said Jennifer Hartman Records and Tapes, even though it never, <laughs> we, you know, she never put out a cassette of it. <laughs> you, you don't have a copy of Tweez on that Jennifer Hartman label, do you? No, that thing's impossible to find. I think um, I have the, uh, I, have I, the think, I have the Touch and Go one. Right, I think I gave away all my copies. I have one. I have one that I found in England, like in the nineties that, that was cheap. And, and I, and so I have one copy of the Jennifer Hartman pressing. It's funny. Cause like I traded away like so many of my band's records at different times. So it's like, you know, people would hit me up and be like, I'll trade this record that you really want for this. And I'd be like, okay, sure. So I trade away all this stuff. Now I'm like, God, I got to rebuy my own band's records. It's such a weird uh, yeah, feeling. <laughs> Isn't that a weird thing? But yeah, I always gave them all away. Like I'd be like, "Whoa, I've got like thirty copies of this." Like, here you go, here you go. Like, um, you know, yeah. Everybody got it, and then I end up like, I yeah, I don't have a copy of. I mean, there's a lot of stuff of my of my own that I don't have copies of. Yeah, I think it's like it's like one of those things where you know, now that I have kids, I want to have copies of everything. But at other times, yeah, like, why would I want to have copies of this? I played on it, but now I'm like. Oh, so I could pass it on to my kids. That's why. Yeah, I know. You're not looking that far ahead, though, at that no. age, you know? Nope. Like you're, you're, yeah. You're, in a way, it's cool because you're just totally in the moment and you feel like, you know, it's not, there is no future or like the future, <laughs> it's not worth thinking about right now. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, well, and, and also that future didn't include like, my own band's records being appreciated by me in any sort of way, you know, <laughs> like it's just yeah, like, exactly. Man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause you, you have the experience of it. So, but then again, like, it's funny. Cause like you did keep on, like, you know, you're saying, you know, stuff from solution unknown and things like that. Like, it's cool that you did 
at least have the foresight to be like, you know, I need to keep these for my own posterity, you know, let alone the fact that they've actually become like artifacts. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that was because my, my mom is like, she always wants to save all that stuff. She, she's impressed by things by like, you know, you know, if I were written up in the paper or something, she always saves all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, but the solution unknown seven inch, the first one, I, I definitely wanted to keep at least like five copies for myself. Cause, um, only because that was the first time I'd ever, that was my first record. Um, mm-hmm. and I was that, you know, and it, it was really exciting for me. Well, and what I was going to say, like when, when you're doing solution unknown, and it is overlapping with slint. Did you know at that time that slint was going to become like, you know, maybe not your, your, you know, career at that point or anything, but like that, that was going to become like kind of a more serious band. Um, well, you know, Slint was always my serious band. Like that was, to me, that was like the band I was in. That was my real band. And Solution Unknown was more. I just did it for fun and to like try to meet girls or whatever. <laughs> like it was, it was more like um, it was it was more like a way to blow off steam. Uh, but Slint, Slint was always like that. That was my where I really put an effort into it and like took it seriously. Uh, to an extent, you know, mm-hmm. I, I also took it for granted for sure. But I, I didn't, I, I didn't imagine anyone would be talking about Slint in 2018 for sure. Like I, I, I remember talking to Brit, and I was like, I think in the future the only people that will uh, rem- even remember Slint will be like these these jazz geeks that only listen to like <laughs> records on Victor Rolls that will, like will find a. A copy of Spiderland or something uh, like that, but that I was convinced that that would be our the only way we'd be remembered. Um, I so that all this is still like just the fact that people know who Slint is now. I'm I'm still pretty surprised. Well, um, well I was going to say like, what were sorry. you guys? How were you guys received at, at the time? Like um, by the people around you. Um. There, like there were definitely, yeah, there were definitely like our friends who were really into it, um, mm-hmm. uh, that, that understood it. Um, but we were also, I think like the singer from malignant growth, uh, oh, I forgot to share a story about malignant growth. Like the, one of the legendary things for the singer was that, uh, he, he, I forgot. Maybe they were playing with the necros, and he he put a like a metal folding chair in the middle of the the slam pit and stood on it and sang the whole set there and dared anybody to knock him off, and nobody knocked him off the entire set. Like, I mean, that's how intimidating these guys were. Um, uh, but and and that guy's amazing. Like Brett Ralph, he's got a he he runs a record store and like kind of just like books and anything that's pretty hip he sells and at his store it's called surface noise mm-hmm. um that's if you're ever in louisville it's worth going there because uh, he's always had good taste but um yeah i guess like like he like brett and the i guess a lot of people in the scene just thought we were a little too like too sort of arty and um intangible in a lot of ways like uh you can't you couldn't really rock out to us that much um so I think it, it was a it was a really esoteric group of people that that excellent at the time. 
Mm-hmm. And we knew all of them, you know, they were friends. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's like, also that's like the, you know, the, the kind of like the, the, you know, main period for hardcore rules type thing. Like the bands that would have been touring, I guess would have been like seven seconds and, you know, like it would have been, you yeah. know, you guys would have been definitely a departure from agnostic front. Oh yeah. And we, we would end up, you know, a lot of shows we would end up playing with these super loud, uh, uh, very, um, uh, masculine bands. And, and we would be playing this, you know, we were, we looked like we'd be wearing a pair of shorts and, <laughs> and, you know, like, uh, we didn't move around at all. We, we'd be playing this quiet stuff and like people just thought we were just like wimps or ge- just super geeks or something, you know? Um, <clears throat> I remember we played at the Pyramid Club in New York uh, on, you know, on the one tour that we did. And the band before us was called Slaughterhouse. And they had TVs on stage of, of like, um, you know, uh, fist fucking and bestiality <laughs> and uh, uh, shit eating and all this stuff. These TVs, and the, they had two girls playing bass or two girls in the band that we're only wearing their bras or whatever. And the singers vomited on stage and <laughs> set his hair on fire and all this. And, uh, and, and there was a, a, like a drag club below. And so you'd see like these, these, you know, dudes walking around in wedding dresses. And I was like, man, I love New York. This is awesome. Like, um, and then we played and we were like, we actually played really good that night. And yeah. I remember, yeah, like Brian, like cleaning the microphone really like putting all these like antiseptics on there to get so the vomit smell wasn't on there and uh smelled like burnt hair on stage but i i went to the bar after we played and overheard the person next this girl next to me she was like did you see slim play talking to her friend and she was uh and the guy's like no how were they and he's like she her description was they were too young and too clean <laughs> and that's exactly what we were. We were really young and just really clean, like preppy looking almost, mm-hmm. you know, like <laughs> was that was that a conscious thing? We didn't thing? fit in with them boxing. Was that like like at the time no. was that like that's like a conscious thing or was that just how you dressed? Yeah, it's just yeah, it's just how we dressed. Like Brian McMahon was Ema Sugar wearing a pink polo turtleneck, I think. Like <laughs> and my friend that was like took him to the show was like, "Man, you got a lot of balls to come to a sugar show wearing a pink polo, you know, like Ralph Lauren turtleneck." And and he was like, "If anybody doesn't like it, they can suck my dick," you know, like because <laughs> he just gotten off work. Like he just he's always been like very clean cut and and dressed well, and you know, he's kind of set the standard for us. We had to like compete with him. <laughs> <laughs> Where so, yeah, we were definitely too clean, too young and too clean. Where did the where did this kind of contrarian kind of like, you know, like obviously, you know, history kind of has judged you differently than the people back then did, but like where at the time like you guys were standing kind of so in the face of everything else and the way things are kind of going, where did that influence come from or where did that desire to do that kind of come from? Uh man, I think that's like I don't know if it's a punk thing or like a Louisville thing or what, but like going against the grain is just the way to be (laughs) like, um, like even when, I don't know if you're 
like, I don't know, how old are you? 38. Okay. So you probably don't remember when, like, I don't, yeah, because, like, when when people started, like, slamming and going in a circle, uh, as opposed to just slamming and going crazy, like, uh, we, we called it the toilet bowl slamming because we i mean i i didn't i didn't that was like a new thing to me like i i i didn't think that's what slamming was to like run in unison circle like um so we 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 thought slamming should just be a you know it's just a personal thing yeah just going against the grain uh mostly just to amuse yourself (laughs) um well i like we could stop Um, here now for now because i know you said you want to get off at this time to kind of call the kids and stuff and we can pick it up at another time man because this is i'm having the best time so you know no pressure on that oh yeah me too dave thank you so much for coming back on the show oh no not a problem i i like this show so <laughs> well, that's, i tell you this is yeah. i was just saying off air it's one of the few times that i've had a kind of a gap between the start of the show and finishing the show. So I actually went back and re-listened to make sure I wasn't going to, you know, waste your time with a few more questions, of course, that we've already covered. And I went back and it turns out there's a bunch of stuff that I'm like, oh, I'd be kicking myself if I didn't ask follow-up questions about that. Uh, So thank you again for coming back on the show. No, no problem. I hope I can help. (laughs) Well, the thing I got to talk to you about is funny because, like, I just had uh, Dwid, who's the lead singer of this band, Integrity, on. And it turns out he was kind of, he grew up in Louisville and his first punk show he ever heard, cause he didn't get to see it was held across the street from his house. And it was Maurice opening for Sam Hain or Sam Juan or however your dance. Ex- oh, wow. Pronounced, yeah. Which I believe you played on, right? You played in that show. Yeah. 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 I was with them. They, um, we did it like a small tour with Sam Hain and that was, I think the first show with them uh at a at a high school so yeah that's that's cool that his first show was across the street from him. that's <laughs> real, that's it's a small town i guess yeah he said he could hear it through his window and he wasn't allowed to go to the show by his parents but uh you know he could he, he got as close as you could get without being there yeah oh i know that feeling you know there were so many bands before i was of age to get into bars and stuff where i'd, I'd have to sit behind the you know, just like where the band was playing, sit out at the, behind the bar, and I would listen to him and totally enjoy it. You know, like, but also mad that I again uh, somehow. What like, what were some of those uh, shows that you would? That just what, makes it more provocative. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, like that. Um. There, oh man, there were so many. Like uh, like that band, Malignant Growth, would play. There, there was one bar where literally the back of the stage was the where, where you could sit outside and be, you'd be at, you know, you'd be right stage. <laughs> um, and, and like, it was like TSOL and DOA, just all these bands I wanted to see, but couldn't get in cause I was too young. Like even with Maurice, we played, we ended up playing with TSOL at that bar. And cause I was 16 or whatever. Um, they, they made me, uh, you know, like before and after I played, I had to sit outside because <laughs> uh, they, because I was underage. Um, so that, and I, yeah, it was kind of weird. Like I, um, but it does make it more like, it just seems like such a bad thing to do that you just, it makes it more like you have to know more about this world. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he had that feeling when he heard Maurice and wasn't allowed to go. 
like uh it just made them want to be there even more you know yeah yeah absolutely well and, and i think you know it's funny because rat actually gave him his name dwid too um so it's, really yeah like there's this, a lot of intersection he talks a lot about going to charlie's pizza and how you know underage drinking was kind of a thing there and hanging out with i guess you guys was like a key yeah. kind of uh entrance point for him to punk rock oh that's so cool yeah um it's yeah it's funny it's like the louisville does have like, like a nickname thing um I mean, like people would just give each other nicknames and it would, if it, it would just stick with them. Like I, <laughs> some people I didn't even know, I still don't know their real names. Um, there was Mohawk Dave, Gravy Dave. Uh, there was actually two Mohawk Daves. <laughs> and then there was a, there was Nazi Paul. It's just like, just cause he'd wear like World War II stuff. Like, um, and he, uh, he wasn't a Nazi or anything. He just yeah. was weird. And, yeah. uh, and, Mooch, rat, a, a kid we called burnt cheese. Because <laughs> he would, I guess he would shave his head, but when it grew out, it looked like, uh, somebody said it looked like burnt cheese. And so we just started calling him that. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, like Louisville's just a, it's a, there's a lot of names for people. <laughs> did, uh, did Maurice, like, there's no records that are out there, right? Like, the, the, there's that demo that got reissued not too long ago, but was that the only thing you guys really recorded? Yeah, that's it. Like we never went to a studio. Um, I guess I, I, I think stuff was happening so fast. We just didn't even have, well, we didn't have the money to go to a studio, but, uh, and usually you had to play a certain amount of shows before you could earn, you know, get enough money to go into a studio. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we just, you know, we, as soon as I joined the band, we started playing like local punk shows and then, in uh cincinnati as well like just opening for bands and and then we did that sam hain tour and and then we uh broke up shortly after that and that's and slint came out of that um and king horse uh when we broke up so we didn't really have a lot of time so yeah the only i have a bunch of live recordings that have like a billion songs that aren't on that demo and some of them are really cool and and some of them, you can hear the transition to where it's becoming slint uh, a lot more clear. Like you can't hear it at the slint in in the demo at all. But if, towards the end of like the news, the stuff we were writing that actually broke up the band, because um, Rat was like, I, I can't sing to this shit. You know, he, was, he would just, you know, he was like, I don't know what this is. You know, like he was just, I'm out because we, you know, I started playing with a clean guitar sound and uh, was. I, not jazzy or stuff, but more like Minutemen type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was just too much. <laughs> like he, uh, it, it did not rock. That's for sure. So uh, he he wasn't into it. <laughs> it's it's are, is there um, ever any thought of you like to put that stuff out there? Because it's amazing. Like actually, how did that tour with Sam Hain come about? Because they would have been a really big band at that point. I would imagine, like relatively speaking. They they actually weren't that big yet, you know. They okay. they were still like um, when the Misfits are around. They were still like kind of, uh, you know, they were a popular punk band, but they were not a cool punk band. Like they, you know, because they they sort of had rock starisms that were looked down on. Yeah, and um, uh, and they were really macho, which wasn't which is was also looked down on. You know, like it was <laughs> there was a lot of. Um, 
you know, they would pump iron in the van. Like they were touring in a van, just a cargo van like we were. Yeah. And uh, so, so they weren't making, they were doing well for a punk band then, but they weren't, they, their audiences weren't anything like after he started Danzig. Like it wasn't yeah. like that at all. But uh, that, that was because Rat was always like, I guess had seen the Misfits and then hit it off with Glenn and they, he became like a uh, pen pal and they, they would write each other and stuff. <laughs> and, and um, I guess at some point he asked, you know, he needed a band Midwest part of their tour. And at some point he asked Rat about his band and to send him a demo. And so we recorded that that thing on the on a jam box and sent it to him. And he, he was in it. Like, um, the, I guess the rumor is, and I don't, I've always assumed it was true, but I don't know if it was or not. But um, after... Sam Hain broke up. I, you know, we started, we had started Slint at that time and I was really into it and kind of outgrown my, um, you know, my desire to rock sort of face. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, the, uh, and I had gone, I think I, um, I, I was out or and I came back and my mom had said that Glenn Danza called for me because, you know, I'd written him letters and stuff and he'd written back and sent me things. And I was like, really? That's weird. And I, I called Rat and I was like, no, why Glenn Danzig would have called me? And he's like, he's like, he's starting a new band called Danzig and uh, he needs a guitar player. And I told him he should call you. And, and I was like, I was like, oh man, I was like, I'm, I'm, I was so into slant. Like I wasn't interested. I was just like, I don't, I don't want to play with him. Like yeah. <laughs> those records, if there's any way for the first three Danzig records to get more interesting, I think it would be with you on guitar. <laughs> that would have been super weird. It would have been awesome. I yeah, that yeah. I mean, I was, I wasn't playing like, like my, shredding style and Maurice I was trying to get away from at that point, you know, mm-hmm. with the, to the more sort of, uh, repressed and soulless playing of, <laughs> of slant. <laughs> like, um, so I was, um, so I, yeah, I guess I, I just wasn't at that phase, but yeah, it would have been, if I had stayed in that mindset of like, just like a shredder, it, you know, I would I would be a different person now for sure. <laughs> David, I think the oh, whole man. history of music would be very different if you had made that decision. <laughs> I think it would have changed the progression of rock music in a major way. In in yeah. two major ways, I think. Um yeah. it, but it's it's amazing how much Danzig kind of intersects with your kind of career for lack of a better term, right? Like, you know, there's the, of course the misfits, uh, tribute record that you did or cover record or, right. or, you know, projects as well. And then there's the, the famous story involving, um, you know, going to the Danzig show with slint as well. Like there's just like a, a lot of seems of intersections with, with Danzig and Danzig. Oh yeah. Music. Yeah. I think, I mean, uh, Definitely Britt and Will Oldham and Brat and I were all just, just huge, huge Misfits fans. Like, um, I don't remember if I told you, like, when I first met Will, Brad introduced him as, like, he knows the words to every Misfits and Ramon song, you know? <laughs> like, um, and, you know, back then that was like, whoa, this guy's all right. You know? <laughs> uh, but so, like, yeah, I guess the Misfits were always, like, we were, we were just way into them. And again, like, they weren't a cool that cool of a punk band to like like if you look at old maximum rock and rolls they have a running cartoon where instead of a devil's lock the 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 band has 
dick that just has a dick hanging off and do their hanging in their face like um and that was because like you know the misfits were known to be dickheads you know they yeah. were known to be um kind of thuggish or whatever <laughs> like, you hear that that comes up a lot i find yeah and i actually learned that on the sam hain tour like i i i was kind of that that's part of the reason why i was never called him back you know was because i he he was my hero and he, he kind of turned me off a little bit on that tour because just because of that sort of thuggish behavior. Like I was like, that's not cool. You know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the stuff he would say or do. Um, but uh, like not, not to trash him. Like he also did a lot of stuff that was super righteous, you know, like we, we would get paid 30 bucks for a show or something. Or, and he would, and he would peel, he would give us some of his money out of his own pocket. You know, mm-hmm. um, he, he did a lot of really cool things for us. So I don't, I don't want to trash talk him. No, it's funny though. Cause like the, like one of the things that's kind of become a reoccurring thing on this show almost is that the misfits are simultaneously at once the greatest punk band ever. And also not at all a punk band. Yeah. 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 And that's, um, and that's kind of what makes me love them even more as I get older. Is just that you know, here's this crazy guy who had a vision from the start. You know, mm-hmm. in the middle of like New Jersey, um, like Lodi is a real like Italian sort of tough neighborhood or like town or whatever Lodi, New Jersey, and he he came out with this vision that he hasn't really he hasn't wavered from. It's just evolved to the kind of. Um, you know, fat Elvis thing now, you know, it's like, it's become, it's kind of become bloated, but it's, uh, he, he stuck to the same vision his whole life. Like, and he, and he pushed for it. You know, he made all the artwork. He played a lot of the instruments on those records. He, mm-hmm. he had the, the sound, he had it all in his head, you know, the whole thing, the way it should be <laughs> like from mm-hmm. the start. It's pretty, it's pretty impressive, you know? Oh yeah. It's like, and the- he stuck by his guns. Like even when he was made fun of by punk, his punk audience that he had, you know, yeah, he's always stuck to his guns. And even like the way it's gone, it's almost like he, he had written it the whole way from the start. And it's like, it eventually it will become kind of a bloated parody of itself. Cause it almost like, has <laughs> yeah. to for the, for yeah, the prophecy. Yeah. yeah, that's really true. <laughs> um, yeah. I, 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 once again, I've, I've, I've already kept you longer than I said I would, but I, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was you mentioned this band last time that you guys had played with briefly, uh, Slaughterhouse, and um, and described yeah. like one of the most insane live shows I've ever heard described involving what they did yeah. on stage. Yeah, it, I mean it was it was really unforgettable, you know, and it was and for for me just because I didn't know I was still figuring out what punk rock was in, the, in my own way, you know. I was like, <laughs> wait, I was like. Wait, this is, I, I, I wasn't, I didn't think it was like, I wasn't offended by anything. I was just like, wow, this is New York, you know? <laughs> yeah. This is everything I thought it should be. And if but, it is, um, sorry, go on, sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, because if it's the same band that I'm thinking of, the Slaughterhouse, um, I think they were originally a band from Detroit, um, but they were like definitely like a, a real noise rock kind of band. Uh, and they have a seven inch that's called mommy's little panty waist. That is oh, the, man. it is the most disturbing artwork I've ever seen on a record. Like it is. Oh my God. It is. It's gotta be the same band. It's gotta be the same band because like the way the show you were describing afterwards, I'm like, I gotta find out more about this band. 
And, uh, you know, sure enough, I like looked at this, I looked it up on Discogs and they were kind of like, were they kind of like punk, but like a darker gothy kind of like noise rocky vibe? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely had a, a goth thing that was kind of removed from what I, everything I was into. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was, um, yeah, it has to be the same band. I mean, there's no way if it had that offensive of a cover that that's their, they were just so into that kind of shock, yeah, uh, stomach turning sort of Im- imagery or whatever. It's a, um, like a, it more severe than like the Unsane records that well, had like car accidents and stuff. Well, because the Unsane records are definitely disturbing, but like it's almost like that's just like, like you know, like that's something that happened and they've now you know exploited or not depends on your definition, but like taking that and put it on the cover of their record. This is right a, a photograph of a woman in her underwear duct taped to a wall while a guy in a ski mask puts a knife to her neck and a little kid watching on. And it's a photo. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's gotta be them, man. That's, I mean, they had, they had two girls in the band, so they, I'm sure they got one of them to, (laughs) yeah, no, it it seems to duct tape them to a wall. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, 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 there's no way it's real. Like there's no way it's not a stage photograph. I'm, I'm, every fiber of my body is hoping there's no way it isn't. But at the same time, it's still the fact that people would sit down there and be like, what are we going to put to give the world an image of what our band's about out there? Yeah. (laughs) Man, I never thought to like, I just thought, I I don't know what I thought. I just thought they were a band and they didn't have any, like I never thought to like try to find some of their material. Um, That's amazing that you found that because that, that totally fits the, uh, the identity <laughs> that they were pushing. I mean, they were definitely for real. The singer mm-hmm. set his hair on fire, like a lot of hair on fire on stage. <laughs> yeah, he barfed all over the microphone. Like it was, it was, he, he, they went all out. Like, I can't imagine going on tour and you do that every night, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like that. Well, that like, you know, Gigi Allen, I guess like that's the there, you know, for every Gigi Allen, there's a million, you know, Gigi Allen's that didn't make it. That's right. That's <laughs> right. That's, you know, that would be interesting to, to like collect all those people, like in a documentary Ooh. or something. Like, um, <laughs> I, uh, I think the, like the only band that I've seen that was like, I wasn't actually shocked. I saw Slaughterhouse. Like I was, I was just, you know, the whole, the whole New York experience was just like a sensory overload for a, you know, little country boy. <laughs> like, um, so, so that was like, and I'd seen those kind of videos and stuff already, uh, just because, like the Albini and the Touch and Go guy, shock whatever band came in by making them watch this that stuff. Um, but like, I saw this band and I brought the drummer from the Yeah Yeah Yeahs to see them. It's it was a they're supposed to be a local like a Philadelphia black metal band, and I wanted to see them. They're playing this little place. They're called tomb and it's like t-o-m-b but it, you know with a dot like it's initials for something else like an and, uh, type thing or, oh, oh oh like like in okay yeah no no yeah exactly yeah yeah t-o-m-b yeah because there's another bell tomb i think so I, I don't know what the t-o-m-b stands for for these guys um but they um i guess they they lit all these candles and stuff and i was like all right this is going to be a black metal you know, band and, and the drummer, the drummer from the Yaz, Brian Chase actually had, had the 
the wise sense that something's wrong here. And he left and, and like went outside during when they played. And then the, um, the singer had like, it was, it was, it was really like ambient black metal. There was, it wasn't like abrasive really. It was just, you know, creepy stuff. And, but the singer lifted up his shirt and started like slicing himself repeatedly with a razor blade. And you could already see a billion scars on him until he was like just drenched in blood. And, and I was, and apparently he does that every show. I was like, okay, now I think I've seen it all, you know. <laughs> uh, but this guy, I mean, and you could see like he had like all these white lines of you know scars all over his whole body from from doing that like repeatedly. It was it was messed up. Like it uh, it didn't help the music, but that's that's you know they're keeping it real. You know, <laughs> that's like that's well, like, the gimmick's good enough. You don't show. need the music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> for the visuals. Oh man. Well, that label Depression yeah. Records that they were on. There's another band, Boom and the Legion of Doom, who, when they played with Youth of Today, pelted the audience with hunks of raw meat. Oh man. <laughs> oh, that's pretty. That's that's awesome. I mean, I I like that kind of stuff where like <laughs> the the audience, you know, like like with Gore or something, and the yeah. audience gets covered with fake jizz or blood or whatever and then um but like a, a friend of mine saw cool keith the rapper years ago but she said that he he threw out plastic bags that had chicken wings in them and a little wet nap so, <laughs> so like he, he threw out a bunch of them so people could eat and people were eating the chicken and then cleaning the, the barbecue sauce off their face with the wet nap like that's like, my that's kind of amazing. show. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Like, who thinks of that? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really funny. But uh, that th- throwing raw mates, uh, that's, that's up there. <laughs> um, David, <laughs> I can't thank you enough for coming back on the show, man, and taking the time and doing this. And I know we've now done two parts technically, but will you come back at some point in the future for a technically part three, part two for the show? Oh yeah, of course. I'd love to. I have, I'm I'm seriously an old man with a bunch of stories to tell. Like I, and I can't tell my kids these stories yet. So. <laughs> well, anytime so you're you interested. Want, no, I was going to say anytime you want to tell story and do a story time, turned out a punk is here because this has been awesome. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Damien. You're the best. Thank you, David, for coming on the show. And as you can hear right there, he will be back for many more parts in the future. Uh, And I can't wait because that was so fun. Both of those conversations were, yeah, two of my favorites, two of my favorites. And I've had a lot of favorites on the show. I know, I know. And I say that quite a bit, but I'm dead serious on this one because, ooh, could have changed the world. Imagine he said yes to Danzig. What would have happened? Anyway. Tune in to turn out a punk. Uh, turn tune in to turn out a punk footnotes. I should say this week for an in depth conversation. I'm sure about that subject with myself and Chris O'Toole because there's going to be a lot to get through this week from this episode. Whew. Ooh, I'm excited for that. Speaking of excited, next week on the show, Paul McKenzie of the Real McKenzies, also of the Enigmas, a uh, incredible garage punk band from Vancouver. And yeah, this is a good one. This is a good episode. Uh, I like that this show can one week have J.D. Sampson, the next week have Dwid, 
the week after, um, you know, have Dave Paho, and now we have Paul from The Real Mackenzies, you know? So I think you're really seeing a, a uh, kind of the, the breadth of this music, you know? A couple weeks ago, we had, uh, you know, Matt Jackson, you know, like custom bike builder, Fat Tony, rapper, you know, like punk. Never ceases to amaze me how far this thing goes. Anyway, that's it for this week's show. I hope you had a good time. I certainly had a great time making this one. Uh, And that's it. Uh, Go out there and make your own culture because you never know what's going to happen with it. And if you don't make it, no one's going to make it. That's the kind of thing I've come to realize. Like, you got to, if you want to see it out there, go out there and make it. So that's it. I will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Um, Stay safe. Sign your organ donor cards. Please, people, give that gift to someone who needs it. And, uh, yeah, stay safe. Bye.